You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, I'm a little starstruck because I've been following this researcher's research for a few years now, and it is some of the most mind-blowing research that I've ever read about plants. Joining us today is Dr. Anne Hyduck. She's a freelance botanist currently, and her specialty is chemical ecology as it relates to pollination. And she works with one of my favorite genera of plants in the world, Seropegia. Now, they've undergone a lot of taxonomic revisions, which we kind of breeze over in this episode because this is, after all, not a taxonomy episode. But these are all semi-succulent to succulent herbaceous plants that are related to our milkweeds. And they have some of the coolest flowers in the world. And when you learn about what those flowers are doing beyond just looking amazing, your mind's going to be blown. So I want to jump right into this. I just have two quick announcements to make. First, and very exciting, is I am honored to be the first scientist of the week over at NPR's podcast, Wow in the World. So go check it out on all of their social media pages. You can find out what I've been doing research-wise over the last four years of my life. Also, I've got another great crossover episode coming up this Tuesday with Drs. Aaron and Aaron over at This Podcast Will Kill You. So on Tuesday, make sure to head over to This Podcast Will Kill You on whatever pod portal you use to download your episodes and check out our latest crossover episode. I don't want to ruin the surprise, but uh, yeah, Tuesday, go check it out. All right. Let's just get into this episode. I don't want to keep you from it anymore. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Hayduk. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Ann Hayduk, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Well, thank you, Matt, for this awesome opportunity to share my fascination for plants in general and to talk about my research on um, the chemistry behind pollination. So, wow, how did it come that I specialized on plants um, with flowers that I, well, pollinated by probably one of the most neglected insect groups, (laughs) namely the the flies? (laughs) So, well, I always had a um, sort of special interest in chemical ecology and in particular insect chemical defense secretions and the chemistry behind insect-plant interactions. So it all started then probably, well, about a million years ago while I was still studying biology as a um, bachelor student. And during these courses, I was introduced to um, pollination ecology and the many ways how flowers communicate with their pollinators. So yeah, flowers and chemistry fascinated me most of all these flower traits, and I became interested in learning more about um, how to study them, actually. Then I, I became the chance or got the chance to do my bachelor thesis on this topic, and that was actually my first contact with Therapeutia. At the Department of Plant Systematics at the University of Bayreuth, there is a really nice collection of different species in the greenhouse, and it occurred at some of these species were successfully pollinated, although so far away from their natural habitat. Hmm. And this then created a really nice opportunity for me to explore why that happened. 
So and this is where I started with my bachelor thesis on Therapeutia, chemical ecology. And that sort of was my one-way ticket into pollination biology and flower scent chemistry. And Therapeutia well, became sort of part of my daily life ever since. <laughs> so, yeah, I did also my master's and finally my PhD thesis on Therapeutia. And I still can't let go. <laughs> wow. That's a really interesting trajectory because it's rare that you have someone that follows their whole at least education uh, career on on a single genera. I mean, I'll be at one of the best genera uh, in my opinion out there. It's it's personal <laughs> personal favorite of mine. So I'm really excited to have you on to talk about that. But in terms of what brought you to this point, I mean, was it were you more of an insect person or did you enjoy plants as a kid and just kind of found that both of those coincided really well with each other? I think that I actually. I have to confess that it all started uh, with insects. So, <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> yeah, I came all the way from insects as a little kid. I, I already started a little collection and I dissected wasps and, and hmm. also other arthropods. So sometimes even spiders and things. So, yeah, <laughs> my parents didn't really like what I was doing as a kid. But um, I think that it all started with insects. And then. During my studies, I had this course about insect chemical defense and secondary compounds, and that fascinated me. And, but then later on in plant physiology, I learned more about actually plant secondary compounds. And then I thought like, well, plants are actually much cooler than animals because due to the fact that they cannot run away when things get tough, hmm. they <laughs> have a much broader variety of tricks and adaptations to where they actually are and where they have to spend their whole life. So, yeah, then I switched. <laughs> and when you can then combine um, plants and insects, both of what you like, then that's actually jackpot. So, <laughs> nice. yeah. Yeah, what a great sort of combination of both your loves. And, and it's really nice to hear those sentiments repeated it's very similar to me is, is you start to understand what plants are doing and how they're doing it. And it just opens up a whole new world of appreciating evolution and interactions in the way an organism that, like you said, can't get up and move, has to defend itself, has to reproduce, you know, all of the challenges that are linked to being static, you know, fused to the ground or to any sort of substrate is, is a remarkable realization to have. Yeah, actually, I mean, and if we, if we consider the fact that there is actually a term called plant blindness which is somehow said that when i when i try to explain to non-scientists what i'm doing and how i spend my days and why i'm studying plants and then start to explain them that they are actually that plants are able to communicate not only among each others but also to with the flowers to their pollinators and it's always so striking to see how people react to uh, what plants are actually living things <laughs> so yeah well they they do <laughs> they they are alive and yeah it's it's always a good feeling to sort of I, w I wouldn't call it educate people, but to introduce them to how how cool plants can be and to let them appreciate them a lot more. So, yeah, definitely. And what's amazing is that I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you right now and it's, it's almost like a little bit of star shock because I absolutely love your work. I think <laughs> what you've discovered with Serapegia is one of the best examples of how you can really get other people excited about what plants are doing because of all the nuances that go into pollination, which we'll get into. So kudos to your ability to uncover some of the mysteries of these plants and, and help make them exciting in the eyes of people that 
may not take a look at them, but I mean, even on the surface value, Serapegia are incredible. Like I said, they're one of my favorite genera. I grow a few of them. In fact, from where I'm sitting right now, I can see at least one species sitting on my <laughs> windowsill. So <laughs> that's good to you. <laughs> I'm really excited to talk to you about this, but for people that might not be familiar with Serapegia as a genus of plants, what are they? I mean, roughly speaking, where do they fit in taxonomically? And in your opinion, what makes them so special? So Serapegia is a plant genus within the Apocynaceae, which are a really outstanding plant group uh, with regard to their flower structure. Hmm. So these plants have highly organized flowers. All the organs are actually somehow interconnected and fused, and, and uh, the male and female parts are shaped in a really complicated way to form something called a gynostegium. Ashley Tserupicia is within the subtribe Stapeliine outstanding in the fact that the petals like the, the petals are fused to form a pitfall mm. trap their pollinators and just a recent phylogenetic based concept was published in 2017 um, where everything is like everything within the stapeliine including the stem succulent stapeliates and the brachystelmas and the cerupecia is back to being a monophyletic group because of the fact that Serupicia and Brachystelma are actually intermixed, so there is there is no clear separation if, if you if you call them separate genera. But there is one thing that stands out and that, that strikes me most since I finished my PhD. I try to expand my focus further away from Serapicia and more also into these other flower types, which formerly were Brachystelmas which do not trap their pollinators anymore. And then there's the question why, because usually if you have these functional shifts in flower morphology from, for example, trapping to non-trapping or these really profound changes in flower morphology, um, according to the pollinator shift model, you would also expect a um, shift to another pollinator group. However, within the Stapeliine, all the species, at least as far as known, are fly-pollinated, and that's the interesting thing, because flies as pollinators seem to have had enough force to drive this enormous diversity that we see within the subtribe. And then you can ask the questions, how do they specify or specialize on, on different fly groups to still achieve pollination? And hmm. yeah. Yeah, and in thinking about the recent taxonomic changes, which caused a lot of stir, and I still see people complaining about, which is a totally different topic uh, from what we're talking about today, but to think about, like you said, this idea that most of them are, if not all of them, are attracting flies for pollination or require them for pollination, but so many different variations on that theme, I could see where that would breed a lot of really great hypotheses to try and test, and that's really kind of where your work seems to be fitting in, as you've spelled out for us. So... It's, you mentioned something that is, is really intriguing, and it's the thing I love the most about the Serapegia, well, what is historically called Serapegia as a genus, is those, mm -hmm. those pitfall traps. And people mm -hmm. recognize pitcher plants. I mean, many people have seen them and understand that pitfall traps are really good at trapping insects when you want to digest and eat them. But why would a flower want to trap its pollinators? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it that, that's a really good question. And... There is this hypothesis that cheating actually uh, reduces costs of, of reproduction. So in Serapegias, as far as known, I always have to say that because what we know is still too little. <laughs> but as far as known, they don't reward their pollinators. So there is no nectar that you can actually call or 
the, the amount of nectar, if present at all, is not enough to feed the pollinator. So this is why probably Ceropecia has to trap the flies to bring them in, in, into contact with the gynostegium, with the reproductive organs, long enough to get the pollinaria clipped to the mouth parts. So the fact that it's so complicated or that, the, that these plants are so complicated structures requires actually a long handling time of the pollinator to actually pick up the pollen and transfer it mm. to another flower. So if you imagine that you don't provide anything that would keep a fly interested, they would fly off before even getting these pollinaria clipped to their mouth parts. But if you trap them, then this probably prolongs the time and um, hires the, the chance to actually get your pollen onto the pollinator. <laughs> I love it. This is like, a, they're, they're <laughs> tricky flowers. This is all a ruse, right? And it's this wonderful example of how pollination is not this altruistic give and take. It is literally each side trying to get as much as it can with giving as little in return. And as you said, deception is one of the best ways to do that because now the plant may invest heavily in some sort of compound or structure, but it's not giving up valuable nectar or moisture or some sort of reward to these insects. It's just tricking them somehow. Yeah, true. And I think if you consider that flies are actually a, a really good pollinator group to cheat on because flies have a really short lifespan in general. And if you trap them for like in most species about 12 to 24 hours, then you would consider that for the fly, this is a major loss of, of fitness if, if you are for one day of your short lifespan trapped hmm. in a flower. And if you consider also that these flies are attracted under false circumstances so that they are attracted, for example, thinking that they will receive a, a food, food source or oviposition site, then after they are released, they may be starved to death and hungry fly to another flower mimicking a food source or something that the fly really wants. So it's actually a nice system because flies probably don't, we don't know, but flies are actually probably not uh, capable of learning that <laughs> they were fooled because if you have such a short lifetime, then just this chemical trait that you then perceive is just so strong and you probably are in the trade-off of go for it or again being trapped so <laughs> <laughs> so it's this perfect combination of flies being dumb and desperate <laughs> <laughs> well yeah if you want to say it like that <laughs> i know my bad i'm probably going to get some flag for that i apologize to all of my entomology friends i do like flies <laughs> <laughs> now you're out of that <laughs> yeah so in thinking about this deception at least in the species that you've worked with it's, yeah. Is it food all the time or is it sexual deception? Is it brood sites? I mean, what's going on within the Serapegia? How are they attracting the flies, I guess, uh, to begin with? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tough, tough question to answer. So, yeah, nice question because um, I so far studied 14 species in more detail and I studied um, flower scent chemistry and pollinators of these 14 species but could only fully resolve the mimicry strategy of Ceropecia sandersonii so far. So for this species, we found that it mimics an attacked honeybee to attract kleptoparasitic flies. What are kleptoparasitic flies? Yeah. They are um, little buggers that steal their food from other predatory arthropods. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. So whenever, for example, a spider catches a honeybee, which if you go out to the field, you can see it quite frequently, that spiders, like these crab spiders that hang around flowers and wait for pollinators or for honeybees. 
And then these spiders prey on the honeybee. And of course, it cries for help. So it tries to bite, to sting and releases compounds from from various different glands. And these compounds are used by these kleptoparasitic flies to find a honeybee as a food source. Interestingly, it's, it's only the female flies going for these uh, freshly killed or dying honeybees because they feed on the fluids that extrude from the bee. And that is because they need the protein to produce their eggs. Ah. And Seropecia sandersonii, uh, you wouldn't believe, but the flower scent of this species mimics an attacked honeybee to almost perfect match. Wow. So what this flower does, it, it pretends to be a preyed upon honeybee to attract these kleptoparasitic flies. And they are attracted to the flower tip because in all Seropecia species, flower scent is produced by the very tip parts of the petals. Really? Yeah, there is, this is where the, um, the osmophores, like the scent-producing glands, are situated. And also some other tissue types called lighting zones. So the, the flies are attracted to the flower tip. They crawl around because they are searching for what they're not going to find. And then they slip off and fall um, downwards through the tube inside the inflation. And this is where the reproductive organs are. And then they are trapped inside this um, little bulb on the flower base and try to look for an exit. And why, why they, while they are doing that, they are positioned in a, a really specific way around the gynostegium. And it then requires a kind of key lock mechanism. So it has to be an apt size fly and the mouth parts have to be exactly the right size and the fly has to be strong enough to, to remove um, the pollinaria and they are clipped mechanically to a skin flap around the fly's proboscis. Wow. And the interesting thing is that a pollinarium consists of two pollen packages called pollinia and they are interconnected by something that we call a corpusculum. And the fly never gets rid of this corpusculum anymore. So it can insert pollinia. They break off from the corpusculum, but the, the clip itself always stays at the fly's mouth parts until it dies. Whoa. And for Ceropecia pollinators, the maximum that I have seen so far of pollinaria attached to a fly proboscis is four. <laughs> which makes eight pollinia if there were not some already inserted and broke off. However, for Brachystelma, it seems to be different. If I can switch quickly to sure. a Brachystelma species where I found pollinators just recently during fieldwork the last season in South Africa, where I found uh, flies that have up to 18 clips on their mouth parts. Wow. And if you can imagine how many flowers that fly potentially could have had pollinated already and how, how the fly must be really bothered by having all these clips <laughs> yeah. at their mouth parts. And I, if I were a fly, I would be really annoyed by all these things around <laughs> these mouth parts where I actually, I wonder, I always wonder if I see these pollinia attached and sometimes one pollinium is even bigger than the fly's head and then i really wonder how these flies can actually go on and live their life and feeding yeah imagine having two balloons one each <laughs> at the side of your head and they are always there until you actually mention to pollinate a flower and they break off oh boy that must be so annoying <laughs> yeah i'm getting itchy just thinking about it <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow, that is wild. And and again, just appreciating the scent compounds, at least in the Serapegia, that are attracting these flies and the specificity of that relationship. But then, like you said, this lock and key scenario of the mechanics of the actual pollination process. I mean, yeah. incredible. But in thinking about what it takes to reproduce for a plant, I mean, it's guaranteeing that only flies that A, are attracted to the scent and B, have that right, you know, mechanical or physiological shape will we'll do this, and that way they're not wasting the attempts or wasting their entire reproductive effort on a bunch of flies that aren't going to be lured in again or just were accidentally lured in in the first place. Yeah, well, true. I mean, these these plants, are. it's not that they occur in really big populations, and if, if you are rare as a plant, you really have to make sure that your pollen is transferred in a highly specific way. And um, if you consider that for a flower, one of these pollinia inserted is enough to fertilize all the ovules then yeah Hmm. that's actually quite a cool thing yeah that's so interesting to think about and then what's even crazier is like really what attracted me to serapegia in the first place is just how beautiful the flowers are i mean they are some of the most striking structures i've seen outside of the orchid world and that's saying a lot because orchids are ridiculous in their own way but it's cool to think that this is really the attraction, at least in Sandersonia, is is these flies, these kleptoparasitic flies that are sniffing out what they think is a distressed or dying honeybee. And then you think about the physical aspects of the flower. The pitfall obviously is part of the whole process, but then the wild colors and the ornamentation. I mean, do you think there's like a decoupling in terms of like what the flower looks like versus how it smells? I mean, why would a flower other than the shape of it being a pitfall, be so elaborate? Or is that way too out in the woods at this point to even guess why, you know, sort of the driving of why these flowers look the way they do, let alone smell? Oh, wow, yeah. (laughs) That is um, still something that I can't yet answer. And that's something that is a misery since Vogel in the 1960s, Stefan Vogel from, from the University of Vienna studied these flowers in detail so he started the whole Therapeutia pollination study and he found that for example these passively moving hairs that are decorating um, the, the flower tips of some of these species could probably mimic moving wings of other flies that are already on the flower because um, as we know flies like to go where other flies are already because mm-hmm. that probably is a promising site to find something exciting and so that could be some visual attractant and also flies go for contrasting colors so some of these uh, Therapeutia flowers have contrasting colors on their flower tips. So some or several have these dark um, areas on their flower tip, which could probably for a fly be, be an interesting contrast where they go for. But still, we don't really know enough about the fly vision. Hmm. So there is a fly vision model where you, could, um, you, you can measure a flower color and then find out whether a fly is actually able to see these flowers. For, for the fly, the flower is salient from the background. And for some stapelia species, for example, colleagues found um, that flies ca- can't even distinguish. They, they cannot even see the flower a- against the background. So it has to be mainly a chemical attraction. Huh. But for Theropecia, yeah, still, I, I think... Well, I'm convinced that for long-distance attraction, of course, chemistry is the main driver. 
But then a short distance, as soon as the fly landed on the flower, all these colors and textures on the flower tip play a major role. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of it is there's so many more questions to ask even after you discover something as intense as this this sort of mimicry here. But you mentioned you studied at least 14 species, mm -hmm. and this is the one you've been able to resolve some mimicry. And a, a common theme that I'm finding with pollination biologists and ecologists is that pollination studies can be extremely difficult, and trying to figure out what's going on is is a lot harder than just simply sitting back and watching who's visiting. So... <laughs> and thinking about what it takes to resolve, say, Sandersonii or the other 13 species, I mean, what do you do? How do you capture these scents? How do you study this this in, in detail? I mean, what where does it begin and, and where does it go before you can really start to make some conclusions? Oh, wow, yeah. Well, the Serupicia Sandersonii story took took us, as my colleagues and me, it took us five years to wow. get it all together. And of course, there's a variety of different people involved. So I'm I'm really happy that I have a handful of really good fly taxonomists working together with me. Then, of course, chemists are involved and a plethora of other colleagues. And we all work together to get the big picture. And it all started at we found the, the flowers in the greenhouse are pollinated by these flies. And then you consult the taxonomists and then they tell you, okay, which species of fly is it and what are the habits of these flies. And then you sample flower scent. Um, how, how is that done? You pack a flower into a non-scented um, plastic bag. You let the scent accumulate and then you suck it out of the bag with a little pump. Hmm. The pump is attached to a chemical trap, which is filled with a um, chemical absorbent. And there the compounds and the volatiles released from the flower are trapped. And then you put this chemical trap into the um, gas chromatograph and mass spectrometer. And then you get the chromatogram, which is a computer file showing you a lot of various different peaks. And then clicking into each peak on your laptop, you can then find out um, in a database which chemical it actually is. Wow. So you get this plethora of different volatiles that are released from a flower. So it's mostly, most flower scents are quite complicated. So it can be up to 300 compounds. And then out of all these compounds, once you hopefully have identified pollinators, so saying that you know which flies are pollinating um, and then you can keep them alive and try to test their antennae onto the flower scent. Hmm. So what you do, you do an electro-antennographic measurements. What I have to do with these tiny little flies, I have to cut their head off <laughs> while they are still alive. But they are... <laughs> Yeah, they are, um, of course, an anesthetized, but we say insects don't feel pain, so don't blame me about that, but I have <laughs> killed a lot of flies already. <laughs> I think everyone listening so knows. <laughs> yeah, again, something where probably um, insect people now scream. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so you, you cut off the head and then you attach the um, back of the head and the tip of the antennae to microelectrodes, and then you can test um, the potential or change in potential when a chemical hits the antennae. Whoa. And for each chemical molecule where the fly antenna has a receptor, you can then find out that it can perceive this compound because there is a change in the potential that you apply to the, between these electrodes. And this then gives you an idea of um, the plethora of compounds which thereof the fly can perceive. However, that again doesn't necessarily um, tell you which compounds these flies react to. So when we smell something, it doesn't mean that we go for it. 
And then out of all these electrophysiologically active compounds, you have to find out those that are behaviorally active. So what you then do or try, you take all these compounds that you identified and which a fly can perceive from a flower scent bouquet, and then you can order them, like you can order synthetic standards <laughs> in most cases. Sometimes you have to consult chemists, and if you are lucky, a couple of years later, they um, have synthesized exactly the compound that you found. So in some species, we found novel compounds that were not yet known, and chemists were able to synthesize them, and then you can test them again on the antennae to make sure that you're right. And then you go to the field with the synthetic um, synthetic standards and try to find the right mixture and the right dilution that will actually, in the end, attract the flies. And this is something that can take years. Cool. Um, and for Ceropeaches and Sony eye, we were lucky enough to find a mixture of four compounds. And if you mix them together and dilute them to about 10 to the minus 3 and you go to the field and open up the vial within seconds the flies are there wow so this seems to be out of so many compounds that sandasoni eye produces and among those that it shares with an attacked honeybee it's four compounds that do the trick huh. so yeah and to find out the compounds that actually attract the flies and um, perform successful bioassays in the field this is something that's not the usual way. So that's quite rare. <laughs> and Jeez. we were lucky. We were really lucky. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, lucky in the sense that, yeah, it took little effort in comparison to what it could have taken, but also lucky that it is such an interesting syndrome, right? I mean, just the fact that you're able to resolve what is really complex uh, and, and mimicry upon mimicry, it's just, it's mind-blowing. And I, I mean, that that moment, or at least the, that period of time when it was all starting to come together had to be just euphoria for a scientist such as yourself, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and I love sometimes when I'm frustrated with other bioassays not working, I just take this mixture and go to the field because I know it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just need to see this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to. Oh, that's so um, funny. No, that's good to hear too. It's, it's, uh, frustration <laughs> is all part of it, right? Absolutely. It took me like hours and hours of loading traps in the field with lures and chemicals and then finally you you get one that actually is the attractive mixture and then you find a wow great and when you find in the traps the flies that you also find in the flowers then that's 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 the moment you're waiting for <laughs> yeah hey wait a minute they're not the same ah oh, back to the drawing board <laughs> Yeah, then at least you found something that attracts other flies. Sure, sure. And that's what's really interesting about this is, again, going from like sort of the collaborative effort of having all of these people, chemists, entomologists, botanists, ecologists, that sort of stuff, getting together and, and kind of combining all of this expertise into trying to figure out what the complete picture is here. But then just the mysteries behind it, too, is, okay, you were very lucky to find one that does attract these flies, but okay, you've got now 13 other species of Serapeugia that you've worked on. You've probably identified a suite of chemicals, I would assume, right? And now it's, okay, who's being attracted here? Which chemicals are attracting who? Are these the chemicals? Are these the pollinators? That's got to be an intense mystery to set forward in front of yourself as a scientist. Yeah, well, funny enough, like in our in, in the greenhouse in Bayreuth where I, where I started getting into these plants, we had also a species from China. So we had Ceropetia sandersonii, 
And then one species that is actually originating from China, Ceropecia dolichophylla, but it was um, pollinated in our greenhouse by exactly the same flies. Wow. However, wow. when I sampled that species, it has a completely different chemistry, so no compounds in common and completely different groups of chemicals called spiroacetals. And these things are so rare for plants. So, however, they are usually known to be emitted from insects. So insect chemical secretions or defensive secretions often um, have spiroacetals. And the funny fact is that one of these spiroacetals, the main compound of Ceropecia dolichophylla, was also something new to science. And we, again, were lucky that um, our chemist got it identified and synthesized and it is in this species this one compound that attracts the flies so this gives you an idea of the similar flies being attracted to completely different compounds and the spiroacetals and the second main compound from Ceropecia dolichophylla are found in the defense secretion or the, the venom gland of a paper wasps so this gives you then probably the direction of where it goes. So it's again kleptomyophily. The species also attracts kleptoparasitic flies for pollination. And the strategy is again mimicking hymenopteran venom. <laughs> However, it's a completely different model that is mimicked by this plant. And of course, it occurs in completely different habitats on different continents and therefore it being attractive to the same flies is not a problem. So there is no pollinator competition. Um, yeah, so that's quite fascinating. And it seems that these kleptomyophily, which what we call the syndrome, probably widespread among um, theropetias. However, it's difficult to say if like what what the other models that are mimicked by the flowers may be. Um, we have for, for one uh, additional species, Therapecia stenanta, which was recently published by colleagues and me. The scent compounds in that species are mainly aromatics. And we also found, again, novel compounds that we have synthesized. But still there, it's, it's just hype, hypothesizing around what the flower could mimic. Is it a food source? Is it pheromones? There we don't know. All we have for now is the electrophysiology with the flies, and we know which compounds are perceived by the flies. However, the, the bioassays to actually attract them are still something that we are working on. Wow. And that's the fascinating thing, because my feeling is that these complex novel chemicals that we found in flower scent of that species may actually definitely be fly pheromones. Um, and that would be the first sexual mimicry in Seropecia. But yeah, it's still only an, uh, still guessing, <laughs> sticking in the dark and trying to find out what it actually does. So. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. And I can see why, you know, fieldwork is such a big component of your research and why, you know, it, it took us a while to schedule this. You're, I, I would assume one of the best ways to test this is, like you said, grab those compounds, go out into the field and then see who shows up. And then try to, you know, piece the puzzle together from that point. But it is interesting to think, yeah, again, Serapegia, they're all these pitfall traps. They're all tricking something. And, and it's just the variations on the theme of how do we trick them? What are we tricking them into thinking they're doing? And then, you know, a, all of this centered around just trading those pollinia from plant to plant. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so exactly. cool. 
Yeah. And I mean, what, what I so much like about my work is that it's so interdisciplinary and that I work together with so many people from different fields. And it's just great to, to collaborate. And I, I just really love that. And it's not that it's, yeah, these puzzles you can't resolve on your own. It's impossible. And I spend hours and hours in the field, but then going back to the laboratory and, and then sorting out the flies and sending them away all across the world to different hmm. people being specialized on, on certain fly groups and then consulting chemists to, to ask if they could find out about weird compounds and probably hmm. synthesize them if you cannot order them and then trying to find the right mixture in trial and error in the field. I mean, it's just yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very obvious if it's stuck with you throughout all of your education and now into your professional career as a researcher. I mean, it's remarkable. And, and one of the cool things, too, is you have this amazing system where you can study or at least compare these pitfall traps to non-pitfall traps like we see in Brachystelma. I mean, Brachystelma oh, yeah. is at least a little bit more easy to recognize as a member of a Apocynaceae than, say, most of the Serapegia, but nonetheless, they're attracting something in a completely different way. And as you mentioned, uh, a very successful way, one fly had, what, 18 <laughs> polynia on it yeah. at some point, you know? And so in thinking about the differences between these closely related genera, or what is now essentially the same genera, I mean, what what's going on with Brachystelma? These open, completely available flowers, are they tricking too? Um... I say now yes, <laughs> under <laughs> the premise that I that we do not yet have uh, enough data to actually know what exactly they are mimicking. So the diversity of flower forms in Brachystelma is just as astonishing as in Zeropecia, if you still separate them as what they have been before the new uh, concept. So talking about that Seropecia is a trap flower and Brachystelma is an open flower. And that means that in Brachystelma, the gynostegium is freely accessible to a pollinator. And in most of the species, you find considerable amounts of nectar. And my feeling is that this keeps the fly interested in the flower long enough to get this key lock mechanism working. However, for Brachystelma, there's not yet enough known, um, although some species have a really disgusting smell. So they smell like rotten things. And obviously, this is something that you also find in many stapeliates. And of course, the hypothesis is that's an oviposition site mimic, or it could mimic also a food source. So yeah, but it's still hypothesizing around. It's not... We do find chemical um, compounds that are also known from um, rotting organic material. So that actually points towards oviposition site mimicry. But um, that is only for those species that have these typical syndrome of reddish spotted corollas, um, ground dwelling stems and yeah this disgusting smell but yeah. there are so many other species that completely look like something that you wouldn't think is a brachystelma when i saw for example first time um, brachystelma rubellum i was like okay it's an erect stem the flower is quite delicate it, it's purple um it doesn't really look like what i was introduced to brachystelmas years ago and then i got into that a lot more over the last years and i it's even more fascinating as Ceropeaches <laughs> because the variety is just so astonishing. Yeah, it's it's an incredible group of plants. And, and 
you know, I'm very used to these as probably most of my listeners, if they're familiar with any of these words, I would assume unless they're from Africa or Asia where these plants grow in the wild, they're probably used to seeing them sitting in pots and maybe botanical gardens or, or very esoteric collections like the one I'm <laughs> curating at my house. But in thinking about their positioning in the wild, I mean, like the seropegias, they're, they're vining, uh, brachystelmas, they're kind of, some of them are caudiciform. Like, what, what, where do you go to find these plants in the wild? I mean, what kind of habitats are they living in? Is it varied or do they all kind of hang out in similar places? Oh, no, that's quite variable. I mean, um, Brachystelmas, a lot of species you find in, in, in habitats with sandstone and rocky outcrops, and they have these tubers not really deep in the ground. But then there are others that you find in grasslands, and they grow among these grasses and on erect stems and not creeping along the ground. So, yeah, they are really, they are variable. So hmm. Yeah, and I would assume that that, you know, habitat in and of itself will select for not only just the plants, but also the suite of available insects. And and again, it just unravels all of these wonderful mysteries that can give lifetimes worth of questions to ask and to test and to, to play around with. Yeah, I mean, flies are such a big group and there are so many flies with a plethora of different life traits. And if a plant group like there are so many different niches they can evolve into to switch from one fly group to another. Like this is just almost like switching from one pollinator group to another because flies are so diverse. Um, and this is what I think could be the key into how this extreme diversity amongst the Piliine could have evolved as because just flies are so diverse. I mean, there's just so many different ways of of using different flies as pollinators that, yeah, I mean, it seems to just be an endless <laughs> thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about all of the insects that are attracted or just like run into you when you walk outside. I mean, I think a majority of them that aren't beetles are probably flies of one form or another. But that's a really interesting point in terms of like adaptive radiations and the diversity of all of the weird shapes and forms and colors of flowers and, and obviously smells, whether we can detect them or not. Um, you know, most Serapegia, for instance, kind of all look the same when they're not flowering or they're they're not terribly different in, in habit. But then you see the flowers and you're going, oh, there's something extremely complex going on here. And it, it stands to reason then, like you said, you get a mutation in, say, a different pathway for scent compounds or different texture or color on the flower. And suddenly you open up a whole new suite of potential pollinators because, again, as you mentioned, flies are literally everywhere out there. Yeah, absolutely true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, if, if you if you consider fly groups can be specialized on on so many different food sources or, or, or habitats or reposition sites, and some flies are specialized on millipedes and and hmm. defensive secretion of millipedes, and and then this could be an arthropod mimicry if if Serapetia is pollinated by these flies. What I like is just you, you can connect. What is known about flies, if at all the biology is known, and then you can you can trace back. Okay, do I find the compounds that I found uh, find in this particular Ceropetia flower scent? Do I find those with items that these flies are are somehow associated with? And then you can sort of try to to sample different items these flies might be interested in and try to compare. And yeah, and that's just. Wow. <laughs> I mean, going back to the interdisciplinary comment you made, I mean, it's amazing that 
Okay, you've set out to understand pollination in a group of plants, but this is a perfect example that nothing exists in a vacuum. And think about all of the discoveries that you can then find about, again, like you said, how these flies behave, how flies are responding to different chemical compounds, how different chemical compounds are synthesized. I mean, you mentioned a few were not known to science before. I mean, everyone's getting something new out of this question of who's pollinating what and why. <laughs> Yeah, and, and also, funny enough, um, some years ago, I fished out flies from a Cerepicia flower that had weird things growing out of their of their head and abdomen. And I was like, well, that, that looks like parasitic fungi. And then I contacted a specialist on these, on these fungi, and we found that, yeah, one thereof was a new species, and the other one was the first record for this area. So all these things that I can feed different disciplines just by what I do and that's just amazing. That's fantastic. Oh my gosh. I was like, that's why I'm so happy that you're here now because it is like literally looking over your work is this big example of like what I love about the discipline that is science and what you can find out and, and the, the idea that you have no idea what you're going to be able to say with any number of data points. Yeah. And, and it's, it's also quite cool that it's not, it, doesn't only involve researchers or, or scientific people. It also involves a lot of just hobby botanists or, or people being specialized on these plants in their habitats. And without those people, I, I wouldn't be able to find good enough populations to study. And then also people who grow them just because they love them. Um, right. I have to mention that now that I, I received uh, about 350 flies from Belgium from someone who in the 90s uh, fished out every fly from every Cerepicia flower he had in oh, his greenhouse. And I, I could talk my taxonomist colleagues into identifying them. And based on this huge abundancy of one species that we found uh, in this collection, the taxonomists um, was now were now actually able to, to separate fly species that were beforehand not there in big enough abundancy to carve out the traits to huh. actually identify species correctly. And this is where I really have to appreciate now that there are people out there, um, non-scientists that, that do these things. And yeah, this is just amazing. I love it. <laughs> uh, amazing doesn't even begin to cover it. This is so cool. And it's very obvious from talking to you that there is no shortage of questions and investigations that you could tackle. So I'm curious, just in the next few years, I mean, what's on the horizon? What are you trying to figure out next? Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it all depends on, on, on funding, um, but I, I really try to more explore these shifts in functional flower morphology between Cerupicia and Brachystoma. So why? Why did it happen that there, these trap flowers got lost and re-evolved several times? So why? <laughs> Where are the selective flower traits? And yeah, what changes first, chemistry or flower shape and... How do the pollinators change between trap flowers and open flowers? And how does the chemistry change? And just to look more into this evolutionary scenario. Yeah, that would be something that I, I could do for the rest of the, <laughs> my scientific career. <laughs> That's fantastic. So cool. Um, so if people like myself that want to keep up and, and, and try to follow what's coming out of uh, all of this hard work, how do you recommend people find out more about you and your research? Oh, wow. Uh, that's a good question. Um, 
yeah, I, I probably would have to do more um, public outreach, but I do give a lot of presentations on, on conferences, but of course, um, lay people, um, yeah. That's okay. I mean, I can put up a link to your ResearchGate account, at least give people an idea of where to look. Um, oh, uh, perfect. Dr. Hayda, thank you so much for blowing my mind and the minds of all of my listeners with this incredible research. It's amazing. And I'm so happy that seropegia and to some extent these brachystelma, or at least the stapeliads in general, are becoming somewhat of a curiosity in the horticultural trade so that everyone potentially could enjoy these in their own home, um, provided they're ethically sourced. But thank you so much for opening our minds to the amazingness of these already cool plants. Yeah, thank you so much, Matt, for this chance to talk. And I hope that now everyone who has a Ceropetia under Sony Eye, which is commercially available on his or her windowsill, probably now thinks about how cool these flowers are. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go stare at mine for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I hope that I could um, transfer my fascination a bit to other people as well. <laughs> well, I, I can ensure you that you have. So thank you again for talking <laughs> with us uh, and taking time out of what is a very busy schedule and, and good luck in the field. Great. Thank you, Matt. Yep. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. All right. Mind-blowing research. Absolutely love everything she's been doing. It's incredible. And there's so many amazing questions to be asked. And as you heard, she's only begun to scratch the surface of this incredible group of plants. So Unfortunately, she doesn't have a lot of social media presence, but I will link her ResearchGate profile on indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Just navigate to the page for this episode, and you can check out all of her papers and such there. I thank her again for taking time to talk with us. She's very busy, and as you can imagine, being a freelance botanist means you're constantly looking for different sources of funding. So again, I thank her for talking with us. All right, don't forget to check out all of the cool content that Wow in the World generated for me this week. It's, again, an honor to be their Scientist of the Week. So if you want to know what kind of research I've been getting into, go check that out on their social media pages. Also, Tuesday, this podcast will kill you. Another great crossover episode with Drs. Aaron and Aaron. I know you're going to love that one. Finally, make sure you're checking out all the cool merch we have. They're customizable, and a portion of every purchase is being donated to the Rainforest Trust, so go check that out over at teespring.com slash stores slash indefensive plants. But that's it for this week. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button, and if you're enjoying this podcast, let me know what you think about it. Otherwise, I hope you all have a fun and safe week. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone. <laughs>